Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den britiske historiker, bestsellerforfatter og professor i historie ved Universitetet i Oxford, Peter Frankopan. Good afternoon and welcome to you, Peter Frankopan, who is with us from Oxford, I believe. Do you know what, Rune? I'm such a pleasure to be here, but I hate this technology. I would much rather be in Schopenhagen with you talking and then afterwards we could go and have a have a drink and talk about the meaning of life but I'm very pleased to be coming across uh, the North Sea by, via via radio waves but um pleasure to be here Peter Frankopan blev verdensbrømt da han for nogle år siden udgav bogen The First Crusade The Call from the East senere udgav han bogen The Silk Roads A New History of the World fra 2015 som også blev en bestseller en bog der genfortalte verdenshistorien men med fokus på Østen snarere end på Vesten. Det er dog intet imod forskydningen i hans nye bog The Earth Transformed and Untold Story, der udkom tidligere på året. Der genfortæller han nemlig verdenshistorien, men med den forskel, at naturen er i centrum. Frankopans pointe er, at vi altid har fortalt historier, sådan at menneskene spillede hovedrollerne, menneskene stod på scenen, og vi tog scenen for givet. Så alle de store begivenheder er fortalt enten gennem hovedpersoner eller handlende kollektiver, og vi har som regel taget naturen for givet. Det er klart, der er undtagelser som store vulkanudbrud, voldsomme oversvømmelser, men de er netop undtagelser. Frankopans pointe og præmissen for hans store bog, det er, at vores verden altid har været præget af forandring i vejret. Vores store fortællinger vidner faktisk om det. Hvis man tænker på Adam og Eva, så handler det jo egentlig om, hvad der sker, hvis der er, man ikke respekterer den økologiske balance. Hvis man gentænker historien om Noahs ark, så handler den om, hvad der sker, hvis der kommer en kæmpe stor oversvømmelse. Så det Frankopan gør i The Earth Transformed, det er at han fjerner fokus fra menneskene på scenen og ser på selve scenen, som er vores naturgrundlag. Det er en vigtig indsigt hos Frankopan, at det jo ikke er sådan, at naturen er den virkelige aktør i verdenshistorien. At i stedet for det menneske, der handler, så er det naturen, der handler. Vi skal i stedet for forestille os samspillet mellem scenen og menneskene på den som noget helt afgørende. Det fører ham til nogle store erkendelser omkring romerigets storhed og fald, omkring slavehandel, omkring alt det, der skete i Vesten i tiden efter 2. verdenskrig. Og alt det kommer vi ind på i den her samtale med Peter Frankopan, der er med os fra Oxford University. God fornøjelse. You've written a book, Earth Transformed, which is a huge achievement and such an ambitious work, and it's such a teaching moment for us to, to read it. You know, we keep discussing here how do climate change force us to rethink our history our literature our collective imagination this book definitely is a masterpiece when it comes to that uh, how did you come up with the idea of writing earth transformed gosh well thank you that's so kind of you i i, might, I hope it's been transcribed so i get your generous praise aruna um Well, I suppose there are three reasons. Number one is that I'm a professor at Oxford. And despite what my children tell me, uh, you know, you've got to be reasonably intelligent to get a job like mine. And if you get a job like mine, probably you should be ambitious. You know, there's no point rewriting uh, the histories that we already know in a very slightly different way. So I think thinking big, we tend not to reward in the academic world very often because you should know your place. That's one reason is, is you know, I think as a 
man in his 50s, my job is to try to encourage discussion. And, and a good historian just asks good questions. That's one. Second, I'm professor of global history. And as I've written in my other books um, about the Silk Roads, despite what we might think, the world doesn't begin and end with us in Europe, or in fact, really only Eastern, I mean, only really Western Europe. But this big global canvas, it's really important to be trying to tell people's histories from the past. But third, I think, is that we are obviously living in a time of enormous climatic uncertainty and environmental change. It's not just about global warming and sea level rise. It's also about how we exploit the environment, sustainability. You're pretty good at that in Denmark, although your air quality in Europe is only 11th best uh, in Denmark. There's not a single city in Denmark that meets uh, World Health Organization um, air quality which is a real challenge given how much you cycle. Danes are very careful about how they spend their money. They're very careful about how they recycle. But we're living in a time of enormous impact on the environment where we realise that there's a challenge. And it just so happens at the moment, um, in my world as a historian, the things that are moving fastest are not the discovery of new manuscripts and or Indiana Jones disappearing and coming up with a new object no one's seen for thousands of years. But the new tools we have as historians give us an incredible ability to not always rethink the past, but a new set of tools to be able to understand the past. So there are not many stories that involve us all globally. Climate and climatic changes is one of them. You know, I suppose there's a sideline, you know, my, my work in the past has been about looking at the rise of Asia, the rise of China. That's the single, and, and Russia, of course, the single biggest challenge opportunity of the 21st century. How we deal with the, the current crises, environmental of all kinds, as a colleague of mine at Cambridge puts it, the decisions we make in the next 15 years will shape the next centuries, if not the next millennium for our species. And as a historian, I think to engage with that, it's very exciting. I think when we grew up and went to school, I'm not a historian, I'm a journalist. But when we were taught history, it was always about human action, maybe collective action, maybe hero action, but it was always about human action. It always started with humans and ended with the, with humans. You start your book way before humans became relevant in the world or, or even became present. And I think there's a point in the, in that. Well, stop me, Runo. But, you know, you, you in Scandinavia treat sexual equality very seriously, much better almost than any other place on Earth. But the history you learned in the classroom, like I learned, wasn't about humanity. It was about men, almost exclusively. There are a few exceptions. The women you ever heard about were elite women, queens. So history, if you take a different path is always about excluding people it's about who you don't write about who you don't learn about and you know i'm a little bit older than you runa but you know in my classroom i never heard a word about china afghanistan persia africa i mean the 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 pyramids that was for there for a reason i still don't quite know why we were taught about the pyramids but so history i think is different it's how do you exclude and if you then think well how do i start from the beginning what should i write about it's first you know, that we are all shaped by the stage on which we act. They're all shaped by the homes in which we live. And the home for all of our species is this planet. So I started at the very beginning, the creation of the Earth, partly because um, I wanted to know more about that myself, partly because some of the things that happened hundreds of millions of years ago shape our world today. So, for example, uh, the wealth of the Middle East, uh, you know, our, 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 your next door neighbor's uh, with uh, uh, with Erling Haaland playing for Manchester City, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, some of these great teams all over the world, funded by a, a Saudi Arabian and Gulf wealth that comes out of the chance of where sea levels rose hundreds of millions of years ago, uh, long before humans found that exciting. And in fact, if we had been talking, we wouldn't have been on Zoom 120, 130 years ago, no one would have thought oil 
would be powering anything. It was all about coal. And that's to do with where um, uh, deep deposits and forests and animals died in the distant past. So we have inherited all of these geological changes. You can't understand human history or geopolitics without factoring in where the things that we grow, the things that we eat, the th things that we use, where they all come from and how they were formed. And I just think when we think in history lessons at school from the age of four years old until university, it's always about humans. And you will never hear a single word in history lessons about climate or weather or patterns of environmental change. And yet it's so obvious to us all that, you know, if you have too much rain, too little rain, if you live in a warm zone, a tropical zone, humid zone, things look very different from incidents of disease to political structures. So I think it's just important to take a few steps back into the past so we can understand it better. When you reintegrate natural and human history, I imagine that you must change your method quite a bit because I, writing the history of humans, you know our sources, you know the written text, you know how to interpret them. but And, and this is like making old people speak or finding their speech. But how do you make nature speak and how do you make these long climate change? How, how do you read them and how do you write about them? It's a great question. Um, I think when we get to human history that has records and people have developed writing systems, so about 5,000 years ago, then then our, our record of the past becomes very, very different because we know what people think. It doesn't mean they were right. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that their thoughts are representations of what they really believed, but we start to have voices from the past that we can use. So when we get to that period, when I get to that period uh, onwards, I always try to use primary primary sources. Like, like a good journalist, you want to know what the, the principal actors are saying. The analysis is really important, but the analysis comes alongside the interpretation. So it gives me huge pleasure in my books, like with Silk Roads in this one, to be able to explain what it was that people living a thousand or two thousand years ago thought was going on, and then to explain why they maybe thought that. For, for the for the period before that before that point, before five thousand years ago or so, it's more complicated. But you know, your readers will find that I cover you know hundreds of millions of years in a couple of paragraphs. Uh, you know, it's it's because because it's very hard to get texture on what's happening in these long, long, slow periods of time. But I do keep reminding that our species has only been here for 0.005 percent of the Earth's existence. You know, we're quite new arrivals, and we're not alone on this planet. There are millions of different animal species and plant species, and I suppose you know, nature doesn't really care if humans are the dominant species. Nature is constantly. Uh, evolving to adapt and so that should teach us some important lessons too it's so interesting with your book because it forces one to rethink a lot of the stories that we know there are stories from the bible where i think of course noah's ark is also a history about weather and oh and you open the book with the um, with the garden of, of eden and john milton's retelling it in in paradise lost how many of these stories were you reinterpreting for yourself how did they change for you? Because many of them, I thought of them as almost psychological parables that Garden of Eden was about man doing something wrong. And then after reading your book, well, maybe it's not about that. Maybe it's about respecting balance in nature. And maybe that's just a modern interpretation, making humans the protagonists. You know, the, the luckiest thing that anybody has in life is the luxury of time. And, you know, if you're a journalist, you have a deadline, you know, time doesn't wait for you. Whereas I'm a professor, no one, you know, I, I come out of my cave every few years with a few new ideas. 
but I'm able to go for long, long walks. I'm able to have long conversations with interesting and clever people, starting with my wife and my family, but then going through to all my colleagues at, at Oxford, which is one of the very best universities in the world. So ideas, they take a long time to germinate. And, you know, things like, um, I start, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about where would I start, not just geological time, but where should I, how should I capture somebody's imagination? And one of the stories that's most important to all of us, whatever your religious beliefs, is the story of the creation of the earth by God and the Garden of Eden. And I suppose if you have no faith of any kind whatsoever, more or less what you hear in the book of Genesis, the very beginning, first book of Genesis, is more or less the story of evolution, which is the earth is created. Then there are plants. Then there are animals, the oceans and the mountains. And the last thing that God decides to do is put human beings in. As it happens, that's the foundational story for Judaism, Christianity and Islam. So that's already a pretty significant part of the world's population. But those who are more, you know, think of themselves as being humanist or rational, don't believe this sort of stuff. It's it's broadly speaking, maybe it didn't take over seven days, but it's, it's or six days rather, because rest day on the Sunday. Um, it's broadly the story that we're familiar with. And I suppose thinking about that as the as such an important early text that's familiar to everybody, you then have a sort of lightning bolt when you're having a cup of coffee to think, of course, what this story is not about how humans disobey God, which it becomes. It's that the whole point of the creation of the story of the earth is about environmental conditions. And of course, when Adam and Eve eat, they had one job, don't eat the forbidden tree. And when they do that, the punishment that God gives is he doesn't kill Adam and Eve. He doesn't curse them. He put he kicks them out of the perfect ecological harmony into a world where they have to work hard for their food. They have to grow crops in dusty conditions. They have to fear um, drought. Or they have to worry about floods. And those stories are written down for a reason. It's to warn people that you need to behave in a way that is morally good. Otherwise, you'll be face consequences. Of course, the flood of Noah, not just at this time, also in the Bible, for Jews, for Christians, for Muslims, appears in the Quran also also appears in texts from Mesopotamia, from Egypt, about obviously a cataclysmic flood that was widely interpreted across different belief systems as God punishing humans for being irresponsible, for being greedy, and for being stupid. And again, respecting everybody who's listening today, own beliefs, I suppose that is more or less what Greta Thunberg and climate activists are saying. That if you If you eat too much, if you burn too much, if you consume too much, if you can't uh, be sustainable, then this is what will happen. You know, you will have catastrophe that not just for yourself, but for your children and grandchildren. And I recognize in groups like Just Stop Oil, Extinction Rebellion, the equivalents you have in Scandinavia and the Denmark, that story is quite similar to religious beliefs and the ways in which these organizations spread their, their, their very strongly held beliefs, which are about moral behavior and about sensitivity to other people. And I think when you put that all together and you sit down, you go, I can feel my fingers writing almost on their own because it all sort of makes sense. And good ideas are, are always difficult because they're simple. Um, you know, most of my world in academia, the more complicated the sentence construction, the more complicated the words we use, often that's how we show how clever we are. But what's really difficult is to keep things moving and to keep things understandable. So people go, okay, it makes sense to me now what people were worrying about. And when you say this ecological concern dates back to the very beginning of recorded history, including Mesopotamia before even the book of Genesis, you then think, gosh, this is something we've been worrying about for a very long time. Ecological concerns is not just something of the 21st century. And in fact, when you then start to think about empires in a different way or cities, movements of power, the environment and ecology is always there.
It's a point in the book that there were always climatic changes. There were always ecological changes and that they were not just factors, but actually also actors in, in history. But you also say that what is different today is that the climate change is global and it's universal. It's the same all over the place, whereas earlier it was different. Can you tell a little bit about the difference from the historical changes we've seen? And I'm speaking here of the period of the Holocene, not going way, 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 okay. way back, but how it affected human history. Well, we the planet that we live on is a very complex um, uh, it's very complex climatologically. There are lots of different weather systems. The most important one is the El Nino-La Nina um, signal. That's the most dominant climate signal on Earth. That's one of the reasons we've had all these extreme hot temperatures this summer. And in some parts of the world, we're expecting uh, extremely severe winters. So if I've read this morning, I've been doing some work on um, the financial projections of the snowplow business in North America. Because this is going, if you own shares in snowplows, the expectation this is going to be unusually cold. So companies will therefore be ordering now, making, if they haven't made already, their winter clothing, make sure they're in the right shops and, and the prices will go up for those when there's more demand than, than, than normal. So these complex interweaving patterns involve lots of different factors. They involve the merid Atlantic meridional overturning. Our, our planet, although it's broadly round, has a little wobble as we go around the sun. The way that the sun behaves affects us. The, the way that the moon behaves affects us. All the tides on Earth, we don't think about that, are to do with the moon and its position relative to the Earth. So there, there are lots of different factors that go into uh, the global climatic systems, and there, but there are long periods where there can be periods of, of stability globally. Sometimes that's to do with things like volcanic eruptions. Volcanoes play a really important part in shifting patterns. So obviously, if there are long periods where volcanoes are very inactive, that produces stability. So the Roman Empire, for example, were not just well run and um, you know, had a fantastic army and so on. They were ruthless, the Romans, at recruiting young men who didn't have brothers and sisters because they figured that young men would bond with each other, a bit like how we instinctively recognize. The Romans, just as they became an empire, were the beneficiaries that there was a, a massive um, volcanic eruption in, in Alaska. And that suppressed sunlight reaching the earth because although the amount of material that's thrown from a volcano can be quite substantial, when it spreads around the world, it's not so huge, but the sulfur reacts with moisture in the atmosphere that produces droplets that reflect the sun's light back out into space. So when that happens, the sun's rays, if you remember your photosynthesis lessons from school, become weaker. All the accounts and reports at the time say the weakness of the sun was so bad, it felt like it, was not, not, it wasn't rising every day. It means that crop levels are much lower, and as we know from our current last year or two, because of Russia and Ukraine, if there are fewer crops and the same number of mouths, prices go up. That creates in that makes inequality bigger. That creates inflation because some people who have wheat and grain hoard it because they wanted the prices to go up. And so the prices get driven up even further. That then creates demands for political change. And at exactly this moment in Egypt, the question is, let's get rid finally of this Greek dynasty the ruler at that time, women will call Cleopatra, one of the few women from history that we do all know about, very skillful, multilingual, astute, figures that the best thing she needs to do is to make an alliance outside Egypt to reinforce her position. And she bets on Mark Antony, who we know from Plutarch had very smooth legs. You know, I guess he must have waxed them every day or oiled them or something like that. But he was the darling of the Roman army. He was extremely popular with all the men. He was, you know, he was very well known, well connected. He was he was the right person to pick to back, but she was up against, or both of them were up against 
um, a, a, a very, very ruthless manipulator called Octavian, who managed to take over Egypt as a result. And that was the last major volcanic eruption for the next 250 years. And Octavian, who was renamed Augustus by the Roman Senate, given the title eventually of Imperator or Emperor, he, he, he essentially gave Rome free food for the next 300 years because Egypt and the Nile is the grain basket of the Mediterranean. And the Romans were very lucky. They had to be good administrators, lots of different languages, lots of scripts, lots of religions. They were very good, like a European Union, making everybody feel European or Roman. Uh, but they were also lucky. So there was. it meant that the Romans for 200 years plus could set their budget. They knew how much they would grow. They knew how much tax they'd generate. And they could calculate how much cost they could spend on their armies defending the German border, Germany with the border with the Germans, or now the Germans, or the Goths, and uh, in the east. And it allowed a stable state. When that was shaken in the middle of the 200s, in the third century, because of volcanic eruptions, amongst other things, suddenly the whole empire more or less comes tumbling down. There's chronic inflation total political collapse, 50 different men try to become emperor in a 20-year period, 25 of them succeed. And I suppose we understand that all now better in the last two or three years, because what we see, things that are big can fall apart very, very quickly. And so the climate and the stability is something that blends together, that allows predictability, because what rulers and states can't cope with is rising costs and lower expenditure, because then things collapse. It's a really great part of the book. And I was discussing it with my daughter. She's 21. Okay. Because we've been seeing the, the Netflix series about Cleopatra and arguing a lot whether she was black or not. But that's another discussion. But there are so many of these examples in the book where you manage to retell a story that we thought we knew. And then there's this beautiful line, uh, the Romans were lucky too. Another, another very important part of history, uh, which you managed to show has an ecological twist as well, is the story about transatlantic trade uh, slavery. And, and I, I never understood why we why they brought slaves from Africa, why they exported the people and not the products instead. I was always wondering, why didn't they produce it there and then exported the products instead? But actually, your book managed to explain why, 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 why that is. Can you tell us a little bit about the ecological conditions of that? It's fascinating. I mean, everything as a historian, the first question is always why then? So if I can come back, Runa, we talk again, maybe when I'm in, in Copenhagen next time, it's the same question about the Viking Age, for example. So, you know, how Scandinavia blossomed and had this huge North Sea empire that went, in fact, beyond, you know, created the conditions for the Normans who then conquer Sicily. You know, the, there's no new boat technology. And yet the Vikings suddenly around about 750, 700 AD, suddenly become huge colonizers. And the question is, why did they not become huge colonizers two or three or four hundred years before? So it's, I'll, I'll leave that one. So you're, we, we talk about that another time. But it's the same thing with um, with the slave trade. So absolutely, as you say, if you want to have access to sugar or um, cotton, then why not get them from West Africa, where the soil structures are very similar to North America? And it's true, maybe there's the cost of labor. You don't have to enslave people. You can pay people a, a decent wage. You know, you don't have to racially harass them and um, and bond them to you. But what happens is first, what the first thing is that is that those states in West Africa are extremely sophisticated. So we have descriptions of, for example, the city of Benin being with wider streets than Amsterdam in the 1600s, you know, well-organized states that for, for two or 300 years, it was said that Europeans could not, not get closer than one cannon shot from a ship inland because they wouldn't have the hope because 
you know, these ships that are taken by the Europeans have crews of 30, 40, 50, maybe 100 people. And there are millions of people waiting on the shore who don't particularly want them to conquer them. So the Europeans didn't have the ability. So finding terra incognita, places where they could function, uh, allowed the European agricultural empires to be built. And because we, again, detached the environment, the products that we brought back from the Americas, everything that you could could you could carry came back in the first waves, millions of pearls, silver, jewellery. After that, it's let's use those soils. And for the first 150 years of European colonization, most of the labor to create these plantations, most of it was indentured people. So people would come from Denmark or Ireland or whatever. They would be paid, they would work for 10 years where they would be fed and clothed, and then they would be sent back with some money. But um, it soon dawned on Europeans. It took a long time, though, that if you could have slaves, then you had long term um, ability to make these plantations work. These crops I mentioned are very labor intensive. They're backbreaking. It's not like wheat that, you know, they involve some work. They did a huge amount to pick and to grow. But what was really interesting and staggering, in fact, was that, you know, I grew, I've grown up in a world of racial inequality and of, you know, I was writing some of my book during the George Floyd, the Black Lives Matters, the idea about racial superiority and inferiority. In fact, the slaves and the most valuable slaves who were taken across the Atlantic were ones who were racially superior because the most valuable and expensive slaves that were bought with the highest price tags, and we can see this from logbooks, they didn't understand the genetics at that time, they didn't understand why. But in some parts of West Africa, there are populations whose ancestors 3,000 years ago, Bantu populations, have a genetic mutation that makes them highly resistant to malaria. And when malaria becomes established in the 1660s, 1670s in, in the Americas, probably mosquitoes found their way across on a boat. The conditions atmospheric in the, in the southern part of America change at that point, suddenly made malaria viable, that you need populations who don't die before the age of five or die before the age of 18, which 50% of all Europeans did. So suddenly these populations from some parts of West Africa who had 95% resistance to malaria meant that they could get bitten, they could get infected with malaria, but they wouldn't die. And so that whole purpose of inverting everything to denigrate, to treat people so badly, to, ex to exterminate their histories, to racially denigrate them, it, it, was, it, it all suddenly made sense about how that had happened and why. And, and that story around disease, around mutations, around um, price, around all these texts written about, about racial purity are all embedded in the fact that, of course, the beneficiaries were primarily us in Europe. And we had to explain how it was that we were suddenly super, super rich. And if you read my other book about the Silk Roads, you know, I think Copenhagen is beautiful. Stockholm, likewise, London, you know, Oxford, let's say, Oxford more beautiful than London. But, you know, until 500 years ago, these were not the world's great cities. I maybe make an exception for, for Stockholm, but only just the important metropolis cities were places like Isfahan and Bukhara, uh, you know, and, and Damascus and Baghdad, uh, Timbuktu, places that we sort of know a little bit about, Kaifeng. But, you know, the biggest city inhabited on Earth for 500 years was called Merv. In, which is now Turkmenistan. And Danish readers, I would buy you a two-ball beer if you can tell me where it is, show me on a map where it is. Mo most people, they never even heard of it, let alone think of it as a great city. So as Europe became powerful and strong and wealthy, we had to create our own history. And our history, by and large, became, let's go back to the Romans and the Greeks, and then we'll be quiet about the next thousand years. 
And the Vikings were problematic because they weren't Christians. They have a bad reputation, mostly for good reasons. But even the Vikings a thousand years ago were had sexual inequality. So very unusually, we can measure this for skeletal remains. Women in Viking societies ate the same amount of protein as men. And women in Imperial Rome ate about 20% of the protein of men. So this idea, even today, when we see sexual equalities, a beacon in Scandinavia, this is built on deep, deep, deep roots. And I think it's just, I feel like a child in a sweet shop allowed to eat whatever I like, to be able to work on these kinds of topics and to be free to try to join some of these dots together. Yes, there, there are very many great stories in, in your book and thought-provoking stories, but I want to make a little jump now yeah. because the last part of the book is very interesting as well because we see how much our understanding of nature changed from just the consensus right after the post-war to now. And it seems just, I, I was thinking about my father, he's 76. He's, he grew up in a world where there was still a belief that we could conquer nature, almost remodel nature, and now to the sudden realization of the fragility of, of ecology and the fragility of our natural habitat. Can you tell us a little bit? Because I was surprised by the quotes by Mao Zedong and by Stalin and by, I think it's Lyndon B. Johnson, that we have these ideological rivalries after the, world, the Second World War, but it seems that they share the understanding of nature. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a great, it's a, it's a really good question, and 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 so the answer is broad and and probably vaguer than it should be. But you know, the the Enlightenment or the scientific Enlightenment, an age where all to do, to do with European wealth. Uh, if you have wealth, you can fund scholars. You can pay for people like me to sit in an ivory tower and in a library thinking. Um, you can't afford to do that if you're poor. I need to go and make things with my hands. I need to go and milk cows. So as Europe became very wealthy, sciences grew and blossomed. And as a result, I think we all came to believe in the wonder of science to solve all problems from existential and philosophical about proof of God's existence or lack of existence, whichever way you want to see that, through to um, you know, advances of new technologies that would make life cheaper, easier, better for everybody. And by and large, that's been true. The problem is that acceleration in the last hundred years, I suppose. Some of my colleagues think that since the Industrial Revolution, I'd probably think fossil fuels and oil is the most important one, has meant that we are doing two things. We are think that we can always keep borrowing money and or, and not worry about the consequences. And I don't, and I mean that ecologically as well as financially. I mean, right now when we're sitting here, Runa talking, the United States has a national debt of thirty-two trillion dollars. You know, when I was a child, I mean, when I, I mean, until about 15 years ago, that was about $1 trillion. So the idea you can keep on printing money and borrowing and you worry about the consequences later. We all know that that if you have a mortgage with the bank, if you're caught at the wrong point and the bank goes bust and wants the money back, then you're in real trouble. So I think it's it's partly that we believe that financial engineering means that we can always solve it. But also an important part is that we are so wondered by the by by, by some sciences. And I don't mean all because antibiotics, pharmaceuticals, the ways we all live longer are all wonders. But I suppose it's that sometimes we develop these things without wondering what the consequences are. And I'm a little bit involved in some of those discussions around things like AI, uh, around things like cryptocurrencies, around where are the national security threats when you can't see what citizens are doing. And I think that we, we our belief that science will always solve problems is based on some reality. And I'm sure that when we, as we go forward into our challenging environmental time, that there will be amazing developments and, and technology. I was in Cambridge last week at a science research centre talking about or listening to some of the projects to mitigate 
climatic change. And it, it's breathtakingly exciting. So science will solve some of them, but it probably won't solve all of them. It won't solve them quickly enough. But I think that the scientific revolution of us believing that we can keep on going is what led Mao and Stalin and, and voices in the West, too, like Lyndon Johnson and others, to think that it doesn't really matter. You know, we don't have to worry because we'll solve it. I mean, it's interesting to me that you and Denmark have been ahead of this, of recycling, of pedestrianization, of air quality, of parks, of regeneration. But, you know, it's that's not in itself new. Lots of people have realized that you need to <laughs> conserve things carefully. You know, you can't just keep spending. So, so some of the societies I work on most closely are, are nomadic peoples, people who, who don't have fixed locations. If you spend time in Central Asia, like I do, every single piece of every single animal is used carefully, you know, whether it's to make a musical instrument or to make textiles or for food. And I think that when you live in harmony with nature, you are very aware of the price you're paying and what the bill might be. Most of us, we order books. We don't think where the paper comes from, how many trees are involved. You know, I was embarrassed researching my book to find that each pair of jeans that I have, and I don't have many pairs, but I've got more than one, each pair of jeans requires 7,500 litres of water. And I don't know how much that is. I mean, it sounds like a lot. Uh, it was then I did some research on that, and I found out that that's a single human being's, adult human being's consumption for seven years. And you think in a water-stressed world, you in Denmark too, like we in, in the UK, don't have enough fresh water for your needs this decade, you know, you think, well, we should we should be better informed to know what it is that we're doing. What are we buying? But because we click a button on our computer and it arrives the next day, we can understand that there are carbon emissions of ships that and boat and planes that fly. We don't think about production because we're a long, long way removed from that. So, I think learning, going back to school and learning, is a, is a, is is the best I can do as a educator and historian to to give people more information so they're better informed. One one of the pieces of information that I found absolutely devastating in your book was what you wrote about George Herbert Walker Bush. You know, as a climate newspaper, we always tell the story of the James Hampson came to Congress and then the Rio summit and the Brundtland report. But you said that he came, George Herbert Walker Bush came home from Rio and said, well, we will beat the greenhouse gases with the White House effect or something like that. And then you, after that, you said... He was the first, he was not the only one to find out that you won voters by saying the right thing, but you lost them by doing the right thing. Meaning that, and I felt this is the story of our, of the last three decades of combating climate change, that we have leaders saying the right thing and then doing nothing. Can you tell us about the history of this? Well, look, this is the story of our week in the United Kingdom, where our government has decided to scrap all of its green pledges that it made in its manifesto for no obvious rhyme or reason other than there's a very small number of voters here in swing seats who don't believe that climate change is happening. And if you reach those two or 300 people in every constituency, that makes a difference. So our government in the last four days has dropped lots of its pledges. So I think this happens a lot. So often the spur towards clean energy and renewable energy is to do with, uh, not to do with conscience or being a good person, but to do with geopolitical reality. So in my book I write about in the 1970s, there was a war in the Middle East um, uh, between Israel and its neighbors that forced the price of oil to absolutely spike overnight, created enormous inflation across lots of huge queues at petrol stations and demanded action from US president, US president. In fact, Jimmy Carter at the time, well, first Nixon and then Ford and then Jimmy Carter announced very aggressive plans to invest in solar energy and wind turbines. And I suppose, fortunately, the military escalation stopped. Uh, the oil prices came back down. 
and those renewable energy plans were parked and discarded again. In the 1980s, what's interesting is that the reason there were activities around climate change were largely to do with the fact that Mikhail Gorbachev became a leader of the Soviet Union at a time where the Soviet Union's economy was collapsed and was terrified by uh, the advances in US missile technology. Ronald Reagan, some listeners will remember, had announced in 1983 something called the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was a kind of, it was called Star Wars. It was a sort of futuristic plan that the United States would put weapons in space that could shoot Soviet missiles as they uh, came back into entry into Earth's atmosphere. And although that still doesn't exist, so far as we know, although who knows what's uh, still classified, it led Gorbachev to the negotiating table to talk about limiting uh, missile technologies. And at that time, we had um, there was not much common ground between the Soviet Union and the USA, but one thing was the identification of the ozone hole as being a problem. And in 1987, an agreement was made in Montreal to make what we thought at the time, I, I was 16, 17, it felt like a big deal that deodorants couldn't be sprays anymore, <laughs> or you had to have a slightly different coolant in your fridge and freezer. People made a big noise about it, how expensive it would be. Turned out it wasn't expensive at all or difficult. But that close, that agreement will mean the ozone layer closes in the next 40 years. And if it hadn't, that agreement hadn't been reached, um, we would have global temperatures now at least one degree centigrade higher than they already are. So it's hugely important. In the way that that, that God or the fates have a, have a sense of humour, or dark sense of humour, everything was walking towards improvement in our air qualities and so on at this summit in 1992 that George H.W. Bush went to, where he said, our children and grandchildren will never forgive us if we don't deal with climate change and warming. And it wasn't just that he said, well, um, voters don't like it that way. At that time, the Soviet Union had just collapsed and the successor states suddenly benefited from huge amounts of Western capital um, going into improving uh, fossil fuel extraction, particularly oil and gas, but also coal and also other minerals and metals. And the Soviet Union became a kind of robber baron, the successor states, robber baron states led by people who became incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful. And if anybody didn't realize it, we learned in the last year and a half, extremely dangerous. Uh, because when you don't have to worry about your voters, you can launch wars on your next door neighbors and still stay in power, even if they're unsuccessful. But that process allowed a massive acceleration of energy expenditure globally. Now, like everything in life, that is not bad or good, it's both. So the last 30 years, the relocation of manufacturing to other parts of the world outside Europe and expensive places to make things has been very good for the global poor. You know, we've had huge amounts of poverty eradication, particularly in South Asia, but also in China, which opened itself up to investment, really to try to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union and collapse. Many parts of sub-Saharan Africa, likewise, beneficiaries of better water conditions, transport, telecommunications, better maternal health care, infant mortality, clean water, lots of things. But it's also meant that we now burn vast amounts more than we did a long over 30 years ago. Energy consumption and expenditure emissions in the European Union and the United States have gone down significantly, about 30% since 1990, but they've gone up hugely in China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, et cetera, et cetera. And we missed the boat, I think, to collaborate in the 90s. And those decisions that got made shaped the world of today. We didn't create a Marshall Plan for the former Soviet Union. We didn't invest any money in good governance. We let Russia go the way that it wanted to. We allowed oil majors to enrich 20 people who we nicknamed oligarchs, whose wealth is measured in their billions. And unlike, you know, your shipping magnates in Denmark and the, the pork barons who built their fortunes over decades, centuries, 
these guys became billionaires more or less overnight. You know, so one of one of one Russian oligarch I won't name uh, acquired his oil company for three hundred million dollars. It was re- it was valued twenty four hours later at twelve point six billion, right? And that level of wealth allowed Russia to way, go the way it was, but it gave us access to almost impossibly cheap energy that your neighbors in de- in Germany bet their entire economy would be allowed and able to have cheap low low bargain low low rates energy from the next door neighbor and you know because the ecologies are, are all part and important in all of this i write also in my book about the nuclear disaster in uh, fukushima in 2011 where there was an earthquake you know the horrific scenes we all saw in horror on the tv of the tsunami that devastated uh, the poor communities on on the on the west on the east coast of, the east coast of japan what that did is it, it it aggravated the green lobby in Germany to say we should shut down all German nuclear facilities. Angela Merkel at that time, with CDU losing popularity, then moved into that space and said, I will be the person who closes down nuclear energy. And German manufacturing, not unreasonably, said, where will we get the replacement from? And Merkel's answer was, we will endorse a pipeline called Nord Stream 2. So we become even more dependent on uh, carbon and from from uh, from Russia. So all of these things, they tie in closely together. Looking back on it as a historian, it's quite hard to see. Um, it's always easy to be wise after the event. But there's so many missteps. There's so many poor decisions we made. The inability to realize that there will be consequences for building up our dependency, our vulnerability, the, the challenges of, of enriching Russia in the way that we did, the consequences that would have, what would happen as China would become much stronger as the economy opened. That that's all blend into if we'd done things differently in the early 90s, our, our world today would look significantly different. And like I said, it would look better in some ways, but there would be on that there would be those who'd lost who haven't wouldn't have benefited in quite the same way, too. I, I have just one last question, which could be a very big question, but also answered quite briefly. And I know you have a new appointment coming up. When you've you've studied now the human interaction with nature over thousands of, of, of years, so you've learned something about how we deal with nature and our collective capacity to adjust to changing na- natures. And I'm not asking you as a politician, but as a historian, having studied human interaction with nature over thousands of years, How do you see our situation now regarding climate change? What did it teach you about our capacity today? Uh, I'll give a shortish answer. Um, it teaches two things. One, we're not all in the same boat together. Some people will benefit from climate change, not least uh, in Russia, where opening up of new territories, it features in the Russian national anthem, second verse, that changing climates will make Russia even more prosperous. Uh, we're not in it all together. There are parts of the world that are much more exposed to climatic change, environmental degradation than others. So we're not all in it together as a species. That's the first one. I suppose the second point is that um, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're dead. That, that's why people cycle in Schopenhagen today and not in Nineveh or Babylon or Uruk or the great cities of the past. You know, societies don't actually fall or collapse because it rained a lot or it didn't rain for a few years. I mean, I, I write about that in my book. Um, that it's much more complex than that. But um, but you can't keep nature at bay because nature wins. Nature is not here to look after human beings. It's not here to rain when we want it to. But you need to be resilient. You need to be able to adapt and you need to be able to plan. And for that, I'm afraid there is a question for politicians, which is what does long term um, resilience planning look like? And For the second question I'd ask a politician next time you're talking to them, Runa, is you know, what is the responsibility of citizens of Denmark 
to parts of the world that will um, be aggravated and suffer from really bad experiences in the world that we think is coming towards us, if not already here. You know, I was, I was in Pakistan a couple of times this year, devastating floods last year, 30 million people displaced, uh, all the people who are poor lost everything. Um, you know, what is the what is the responsibility of Western governments to parts of the world where there's no colonial history? I mean, we in Britain have to worry about this maybe in some places more than you, but what is our role as a common citizen to be helping people in need? And, you know, because I work on a bit of North Africa, when the terrible earthquake in Morocco happened, all my friends immediately started giving money, which was beautiful to see and how, wonder, how wonderfully generous. It doesn't bring people back to life. But then three days later, there was a catastrophe in Derma in Libya, and everybody's now been giving money instead to Libya. You can't fund all of this together. So the question I think for all of us as a species is, how do we help those who are going to be more stressed, more complicated uh, than we are? And, you know, because of what you do, Rona, you know, and your success with your podcast, most of this happens in parts of the world that don't get featured in Politiken. That, that to get 500 words about East Africa in the newspapers, it's really hard. To write about what's happening in Bangladesh or Indonesia, uh, it's uh, you know there needs to be something really dramatic for the editor to find space because there's so much else to write about, and you know this takes me back to my opening point is that we spend a lot of time looking at ourselves in the mirror. Great men write about Trump. You get a thousand words every day in the newspapers because he says things that people find fascinating. But the substance and the reality of what conditions are for most of us on this earth demand, I think, a different way of engaging with the past as well as with the present and the future. Well, and your book is a perfect place to start. It was such a pleasure talking to you. We covered about 1% of your book, so I advise everyone to read it and get inspired. Thank you so much, Peter Franco-Pan. I hope to see you in Copenhagen someday. Uh, thank you, Rina, for making the time. And I love people people reading my book. I'm not stupid. I know that there are millions of books on the shelf behind you. So taking the time to read mine, which is not the shortest book you'll ever read. I'm hugely grateful. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on today. Ciao. Ciao. Det her var så min samtale med Peter Frankoban. Hans nye bog hedder The Earth Transformed and an Untold Story. Den her samtale var ligesom de forrige langsomme samtaler, produceret og redigeret af vores vidunderlige venner hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge, der skal vi tale om korruption, vi skal tale om Kina, vi skal tale om forskellen på den kinesiske og den amerikanske kapitalisme, og vi skal tale om, hvor meget vi kan lære, hvis vi forstår, at Kina og USA de kæmper faktisk med det samme bedst, nemlig kapitalismen, som de vil have det bedste ud af, men som de også vil undgå det værste fra. Forfatteren hedder Yun Yun Ang, og hun har skrevet en bog, der hedder China's Gilded Age. Jeg håber, vi høres ved. Tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Løkkeberg.